This is Carrie and Summer with the Say My Name podcast that gives a voice to women's stories. It's my story, it's your story, it's our stories of pain and healing. Welcome to the Same My Name Project, episode 11. We had the honor to interview Nanette Okana, a woman who has a story of survival and perseverance. She lived through childhood sexual abuse. She suffered the consequences of coming out as gay to her Catholic family at 16 and learning to love and accept herself and the value of living a life of honesty. She tells of working through the healing process of abuse and how God answered her prayers. She describes her health tragedies and being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and trigeminal nerve pain as an adult. She reached her lowest point while suffering intense pain and depression, but was inspired to come out again, as it were, and begin to find ways to heal herself. She achieved her goal and now lives pain-free and is currently writing books to inspire and uplift. She is a woman with a brilliant light and a soul full of universal truth and wisdom. Please enjoy Nanette's story. You know, I came from Cuba, right, when I was two years old? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I came when I was two mm-hmm. years old. And my mom has always said that because I was very happy in Cuba because, you know, everything, um, everyone was friendly and, and you could walk around a lot. You know, people came to pick me up and I was always everywhere. And I ended up when we came here in downtown L.A. Very pretty different. much in, in an apartment. She said my personality was totally different when I got there. I was like super depressed and and just, she said it was like a different child. Mm-hmm. And I was two when I got here. I thought that was always interesting. I was one, I don't know what I felt at, the, at, two, at two, but I can only imagine. I think that probably changes you too. Yeah. Imagine. But well, anyway, yeah, just uh, just because you're you're a child, it doesn't mean that you can't experience loss and mourning of the place that you felt like was safe. Mm-hmm. Of course, that could be a very traumatic experience. Plus, my my family hadn't gotten here yet. I'm very close to my extended family, as you know, my aunts and uncles. My my aunts, all three of them lived across from me. You know, because the three of them were single at the time, so. Everyone was close-knit and, and right there. You know, my uncle used to whistle for me after work, so I'd come running downstairs and mm-hmm. go walk with him. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the neighborhood knew me mm-hmm. because I knew everybody. I know you find <laughs> that hard to believe, Carrie. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know how I felt then, but I'm sure that changed me somewhere along the line. When I was about nine, I was sexually abused. I had... I can't call him step-grandfather because father doesn't go with the picture. That word somehow doesn't go. But he was staying at our house um, with my grandmother temporarily, and um, he was a child molester. That's, that's what he was. When my parents went to work and stuff, which both of them worked, um, they babysat me. So I didn't feel safe. The whole time he was there, of course. Mm-hmm. He was there temporarily, but it was not good. And I was, you know, 
a lot of child molesters like groom people. You know, they work on grooming them and making them comfortable, whatever. But he was a person that actually didn't like children as human beings. Um, so he coerced me. Instead, he threatened my brother. He threatened to do stuff to my little brother. So, you know, I got in between them, I guess. What were your, what were your thoughts back then? What did you feel like? What did you feel like it was your responsibility then to to protect your, your brother? Or? Yeah, I was always like that. I was always taking care, you know, protecting him. I always did it until he grew up. You know, he was my little brother, and I don't know why, but I was really protective of him. He was really sensitive back then, and um, he's changed a lot since then. But he was very sensitive, and, and I was four years older, and I was nine, so he was five. And um, I always wanted to take care of him. Even when we went to school, in elementary school, if there was any issues or whatever, you know, he didn't feel well or whatever, they called me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you feel guilt, shame, uh, anger? I, I'm sure a combination of all of them, but what was, what was it that you were feeling? I mean, besides scared... I mean, I, I felt guilty, I mean, really bad, because I was taking care of my brother. But in essence, he was getting a hold of me because I didn't punch him or let him. You know, I, I felt like I should have been stronger to hurt him, but I was a nine-year-old skinny little kid. So, that, I mean, that doesn't make logical sense, but, but that's how I felt. Right. And, and it affected me badly because at night he sometimes came in my room and my bed was like um he would come on my left side all the time always and then when i grew up to be an as an adult i actually i don't have him anymore but i used to have anxiety in the middle of the night and and actually fight him off with my left wow you know in the middle of the night and, of course, he wasn't there because I was an adult already. The abuse only lasted a few months. Thank, thank God, only a few months. Because then they moved out. And did you ever tell your parents? No, my brother actually told my mom, like, maybe eight, ten years ago, maybe. Maybe less, probably less. So I never told. That's it, it's interesting because people say children tell, but they don't, because yeah. the shame and you feel like it's your fault, the guilt. Children don't, they don't say it. Well, there are th- hundreds and thousands of women that are listening to this or not listening to this that have never told their story to anyone ever. Oh, because I know. Because of the, the, the feeling of guilt and shame and that uh, just embarrassment, thinking that it was their fault, they could have done something different. So what's something that you feel like you would like to say to those women? Well, also as an adult, the, the thing is, as a woman, these women are looking back, but they, they're adults, right? So they think they should have fought them or, or whatever, and... They couldn't. They were little kids. Right. But they're thinking with their adult brains. Right. But I, I really felt like, um, I don't know if I was thinking with my adult brain, which I'm sure I was, but I, I felt he, he, I should have been stronger because I'm a very strong person. 
but I'm a very strong adult, which part of that made me stronger too. But I'm a very strong adult. I was a nine-year-old kid. I mean, you have to, women don't think of that. Right. You know, adults don't think of that, that they, they can't see themselves. I actually went to therapy and I, I told her she, I, I was nine years old and I was telling her I should have fought him and this and that. And she said, you know what? How old is your niece? My niece was nine years old. Wow. And she's okay. So if something, if someone attacked her, she should be able to fight him off, huh? I said, no, she can't. I said, oh, but you could, right? <laughs> of course, right? Because it didn't register that I was nine years old like my niece was, even though I was saying it. Here's how old I was. It's just very difficult. I mean, your mind plays games on you, really, because you're an adult. I also um, went to a workshop, Carrie. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, you went to my graduation. Yeah, so it's beautiful. Yeah, this this workshop, they actually made you physically go through the trauma. It's not just sitting there talking, you know, to a psychologist, but I actually got, this guy would pretend he was him, right? The abuser, not physically do anything to me, but pretend because they knew the entire story in detail of what he did and the details. And he tried to start and... And I pushed him away, and then he, he I, you know, I got mad. But I, here I am, an adult, right? But the way they do it is you get back to being that little kid, and you see this man who's helping you, right? But you see him as the abuser, the way that they play with your mind kind of thing. Wow, that's intense. Uh, no, no, it was incredible because I was reliving it physically. Right. See, reliving it physically is amazing right. because – it empowers you and you realize while while I'm punching him literally you know with a bag in front of him right I mean this this padding I almost got him in the face a few times I really <laughs> in the face because I was seeing the other the abuser mm-hmm. and while I was doing that it, the the woman who runs the workshop was telling me yeah you know it was your fault I mean you let him do this or whatever and I'm punching or whatever and she's doing it while I'm punching and I turned to her and I said, it wasn't my fault. I couldn't fight him off. It it registered. And then I kept punching him and I threw him out of the room and locked him out of the room. And that was like a light bulb. It was great. The best thing I ever did. Wow. That sounds incredible. How much so many women, women would benefit from that. I can't even imagine because even as women, as adult women who suffer abuse or sexual assault or rape, you know, there's no fighting back even as adults. Mm -hmm. So to go through that and to take your power back and to fight back would be absolutely incredible because in that moment you are powerless. Right. And to do it again, to relive it and where you're actually hitting and fighting back everything that you've Mm -hmm. wanted to do. Oh my gosh. How amazing would that be? Right. And how beautiful for that man to be uh, willing to be play the abuser. I, that that's not a role I would want to play, but no. it, that's and so beautiful for you to have had to have him be willing to be that role mm-hmm. for you to be able to go through your healing at the depth that you have. Right, and it, you know, before my graduation, the workshop because they have a little ceremony. 
I mean, he came up to me and said, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, Aww. because he felt bad that, but I told him, I said, no, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. You, you made me feel empowered because I was powerless back then. And it let me know that I was powerless back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. I, I, I always felt like I should have been able to fight him up. No, can't do it. So what did your parents do when they found out? Um, my dad never said anything to me uh, about it. My mom started crying. I wasn't in the room when she found out. So um, she ran crying. but it, And then she asked me, you know, what happened? Was this true? And I said, yeah, it was true. It was, it was her... Um, stepfather mm-hmm. so yeah was you know that's all that happened really she apologized to me for letting him in my life she said she never thought you know I was old enough for him to do anything mm-hmm. so again not registering your age you know what I mean mm-hmm. so after that happened Talk us through the rest of your childhood, how that affected you, and what oh. happened during the rest of your childhood. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you see pictures of me before that, and then look at the picture of me after that, my eyes were dead after that. Mm. It's like I, I changed inside. You couldn't, my eyes were sad and dead in the rest of the pictures. And I didn't, you know, I rebelled when I was a teenager. Um, I started drinking and doing drugs and was totally out of control. Um, I stopped the drug thing because I really, I wanted to be in control more than I wanted to be high, you know, but it was like an escape. I mean, I wanted to escape who I was, um, what happened to me, forget, you know, whatever. And, um, but I didn't stay in that place, you know, after let me correct that. I mean, my twenties were actually <laughs> my twenties were actually a direct reflection of what happened to me. Mm. Exactly what happened to me because my behavior was not like it would it would have been. I know if it didn't happen to me. I mean, I was drinking a lot, partying a lot every week, and I was out and about and doing things that I was just out of control and excess of excesses. So rewind to when you were a teenager and you discovered who you were and that process. Oh, that I was gay. Yeah. Uh, You know, when I was 12 years old, I mean, first of all, I felt different all my life. Okay. And I was a tomboy all my life. Um, To see me now, you wouldn't figure out how I looked then. Okay. (laughs) So um, I was a tomboy all my life and when I couldn't get, I couldn't call it anything, how I felt inside different, always. I, I didn't know why I felt that way or what to call it. But then when I turned 12, you know, all the girls were after the boys and the boys after the girls. But I, I knew exactly what to call it then because I wasn't interested in boys at all in any way, shape or form. And, um, and that was scary. I was going to... Um, a Catholic elementary school, 
heading into an all-girl Catholic high school. And it's like the a one, classic movie. I know. <laughs> the all-girl Catholic high school, the one thing, the one thing you don't want to be called is a lesbian. Right. So, Nanette, real quick, um, I know that you're you're okay with uh, stating your age. So, just to give people a reference of how long ago that was, what what is your age now? So, how many years ago was that when you, when um, when you went to the all girl? Catholic well, I'm going to be sixty in March. So, um, so, so basically, forty five years. Ago? Okay. So yeah, quite a bit was- different back then yeah. than now. Oh, no, it was, you know, it was taboo, taboo to be, I mean, it it was out of the question to be gay back then. Right. I mean, it was not accepted. If you would have told me that it would be accepted today that, you know, in my lifetime and that I would have been married in my lifetime, um, I would have told you back then you were on drugs. Wow. Because we weren't accepted at all. It was taboo. For everybody, even if you weren't in Catholic school, I mean, it was just wrong and bad and all that. And, you know, that gets stuck in your brain because you feel like you're bad. Right. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I different from everybody else? What happened? And and I was always this way. And accepting who I was was difficult back then because, like I said, all the messages were you were a pervert. Mm. I mean, you, you Perver was a, a, a great name right. for them to call us. Well, I have, um, I have my sister's side of the family um, on her in-laws. She has an uncle that is gay, and he talked about in the Mormon religion that at one point they sent him off to shock therapy camp, and I think he's around the same age as you, to shock the gay out of him, him. I guess. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if they did anything like that in the Catholic religion, but it just blows my mind to think of what some religious, um, organizations would do back in that day to try to change people and to think of how far we've come that yes, there's still a whole lot of improvement that needs to be done, but man, it's, It's it's quite a bit different now. In 45 years, the changes in, you know, the acceptance of being gay are incredible. You know, my mom sent me to a psychiatrist when I told her. So tell us about that. Tell us about when you told her. That was, first of all, I was nervous all day long. How old were you? 16. I'm insane that way. You would yeah. think I would hate it. But no, not Nanette. She would have to do it at 16. Insanity. But uh, I didn't want to live a lie. That's what it was. I didn't want to date boys that I didn't want to go out with. And I just wouldn't live a lie. Um, so I, I um, was at home that day and waiting for my parents to get back. My parents got there and I was a nervous wreck and I told them, you know what, I need to talk to you. And then we went back to their room and I still remember, I mean, my dad wouldn't look at me. I mean, I, I told him I, I like women. That's what I told him. I like women. It, you know, I don't think my mom was surprised at all, really. I just, not at all. Um, but. It, it was terrible because my dad didn't look at me and I could tell he was angry and my mom just looked at me, you know, 
I just thought they, they were disgusted with me. And here are my parents. That's how I felt. And then um, my dad cursed at me a lot through the next two weeks. You know, and my dad never cursed. He just didn't. So I heard words that had never I had never heard him say and certainly not call me. And then um, my mom wouldn't talk to me for two weeks at all. I was invisible. So I finally stood in the kitchen while I'll never forget this. My mom was doing the dishes and I just leaned on the counter and without looking at her, because she wasn't looking at me, I told her, I said, you know, my dad's cursing at me and calling me names that I don't deserve. You're ignoring me like you don't have a daughter anymore. Um, and I won't be treated like this. So if you continue this, I'm going to walk out that front door and you'll never see me again. You will cease to have a daughter. And I told her, I said, you know that I'll do it too. Because I would have. Mm -hmm. As scary as that might seem, I would, was not going to live in a house like that. Right. Just not going to do it. I didn't deserve it. Um, even though I had problems accepting myself, because really... Back then, accepting that you're gay, I think today still. Yeah. I mean, kids have problems accepting oh, that yeah. the fact right. that, you know, that we're somehow considered different. Right, and families are still rejecting, and people are still harassing. Absolutely. You know, back, back, then, um, back then, it was before the AIDS thing, right? And people, you know, we used to call each other family you know when you referred to a gay person you'd say they're family right other people didn't know what we were saying but we used to say that and the reason for that is because the the majority of the people were being kicked out mm -hmm. and your mm -hmm. family became your friends not your family especially if you were men men were kicked out all the time i mean the, the acceptance of a man being gay was impossible back then. You were just, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. So, and it's still, it's still not, not good. I mean, especially for men, it's not. Um, women are still more accepted as being gay than, than men today. Okay, but you know, it's still a problem. You know, transgenders are yeah. the taboo. Absolutely. So, um, you know, there's still abuse out there. There's still places where if you're a lesbian, you don't feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, because they, they decide, I mean, there are people out there that decide that, you know, rape will fix you somehow. Mm -hmm. And, and they do it. They do it now, in, even in areas where gays are supposed to be safe. It happens all the time, and you don't hear, hear, hear on the news like you hear other things. I remember it was probably about five, five years ago. You and Lisa were talking to me about how you got your, uh, you were taking pictures. It might have been maybe one of your anniversaries that you were celebrating, so you were taking some pictures together in Laguna Beach. And you were both training with me at that time, and so you were telling me about the story of how beautiful it was, and you got some great pictures, and... Um, one of you was telling me about how the other went to grab, um, your hand. I think Lisa went to go grab your hand 
and right. you pushed her hand down and you said, honey, I don't, this isn't safe. And she said, no, it's safe. We can hold hands here. This is a safe place. We have safe people around us. Mm. And that story has stuck with me being somebody who has been straight. I've never, ever had to fear for my life or for my lover's life to just hold their hand in public. I had, I had no idea like just something that little is something that is always on your mind everywhere that you are at. And it just, it shook me. I, re- I remember that story to this day of what? I can't imagine. We don't hold hands in front of anybody. You know, we don't kiss in front of anybody. We just, it's habit. We weren't raised in this era. We were raised back then. And me, I'm even older than Lisa. And how and it, how long have you both been together? Um, twenty nine years and three months. Wow, <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I went uh, in July to Siesta Beach, is the first time that my cousins and it was just my cousins and one aunt, right? So they all know I'm gay. They love Lisa. It shouldn't be a problem to hold hands or whatever. And it's the first time I grabbed her to hold her hand and to hold her in front of them. Mm. And mm. I've been together with her for over 29 mm. years. Wow. Isn't that incredible? And I think it was after tequila. <laughs> <laughs> I love tequila. It was after tequila. <laughs> really. I mean, I took a picture with Lisa sitting on my lap, Aww. you know, and... I would never do that. I mean, that's the first time in my life that I did that. And it's kind of sad if you think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that we don't feel safe and we don't feel comfortable. Um, you know, I don't, for example, I don't like California. But in California, I felt the most comfortable I felt anywhere. You know, so it's scary. You hide a lot. I, I've, I've actually done pretty well in not hiding because I've lived my life the way I've wanted to. Um, a lot of people don't. They live a lie. You know, right. they marry, right. they have kids, they marry the opposite sex, they have kids. Sooner or later, they're either going to have an affair or they're going to leave that person because they're never happy. It's impossible if you're gay to be happy with the opposite sex. I mean, if you think about it, it's not just about sex. It really isn't. Right. Because you don't spend your entire life in bed. You know what I'm saying? Damn it. Maybe that would be good. You know, <laughs> edit that out. <laughs> um, it's the energy of a woman is totally different from a man. Right. It's about right. all of her, you know? And so imagine if you don't like men having to live with one all your life. I I couldn't do it. So I decided I wasn't going to live a lie and I wasn't going to hurt anybody by living a lie. So So what happened after you said, I will walk out if you keep treating me this way? my, My mom actually made everything change. She actually talked to me when she was at, right after I said that she started talking to me in the sink and my dad quit. My, my dad quit treating me that way. So they knew I was going to do it too. (laughs) 
I was capable of doing it, even though it was scary, but I would have done it. So, so then, and when you went to the high school, oh, did you come out to your friends or the school? To the school? No. no, no. <laughs> okay. It was an all-girl Catholic high school, as I said, and that is the worst thing you could be. You could probably be a murderer better yeah. than a lesbian. And um, I, you know, I was terrified, terrified to go there every day. Mm -hmm. I was terrified because um, I was afraid they knew or they would figure it out. I wasn't very feminine back then, and um, so I thought for sure they knew, and I know some of them did. I mean, they they tested me. Um, you know, they would put a, a note in my locker, for example, saying, you know, another girl to, to meet me by the lockers at such and such time, that I like you, and this and that, and it was all a setup. It was, the, it was your teacher's? No, no, the the other girls. Oh. The other students. They were trying to set me up so I'd meet, you know, so I'd go over there to the locker and that would let them know that I was gay. Mm. So, of course, I didn't. But, um, so obviously, they, they kind of knew. Um, what I did, though, I didn't have any gay friends at the time. I had one best friend. And then you can tell when you're gay, you can really tell other women they're gay. Mm -hmm. You can tell that they're gay, but uh, even if they don't look it, right? So I, I looked for people in my high school that I knew were gay. And um, I met a person that's still a good friend to me. I mean, we were friends. There was nothing between us. She had a girlfriend that actually went to school with us, too. She was older. They were both older. And um, I started going out with them, you know, hanging out. And she was the one who took me to my first gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> it was in the middle of the week. I wasn't carded, which is a good thing because I didn't have my fake ID yet. So... <laughs> Yeah, and I went in, but, you know, the, when I walked in, what I saw was these women that were bar flies, you know? And I thought to myself, oh, God, I'm going to be celibate the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's true. That's exactly my thought. But I felt so comfortable there. Yeah. We sat in the, in the back of the bar by the pool table, and we just talked. And... I thought to myself, I belong here. Not at the bar, but I belong being here. Yeah. You know, being this person. That's who I am. So I had no doubt after that that that's who I was. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to tell my best friend who was straight, and I thought, you know, she could she went to school with me. So I thought, well, she can do one of two things. She can either accept me or she's gonna go back to school and tell everybody. And then I'm screwed. So I sat in the car, and I couldn't look at her while we were sitting in the car. I said, I have something to tell you. And, and um, I finally got it out of my mouth, which took a while because I was stuttering. And she was just looking at me, smiling, like, no kidding, right? So, so I told her, you know, I'm gay. And she said, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I supposedly didn't know that, right? So that was great because she actually accepted me way back before I knew that she knew. But I just thought that was funny. No <laughs> shit. And I, so it's, it's nice when you're accepted by people that you're afraid. I mean, because you can lose friends. Mm-hmm. You could lose people you've known all your life. So what's your advice for somebody who... You know, possibly it would be awesome if we had some teenagers that were listening to this that are basically where you were uh, when you were 16, right? Right. Or even some adults who have lived their entire life a lie, possibly in a, a heterosexual relationship and just feeling like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. I'm so unhappy. Whatever, whatever situation they're in, they haven't, they haven't come out and talked about who they really, who they really are. What advice do you have for them? Um, you know, the best thing that you could ever do is live your life as honest as you can with truth, who you are. Accept yourself. There's nothing wrong with being gay. So you love someone that's the same sex. That's love. Yeah, it, it's not bad. You're not a bad person, regardless of what people tell you. And you just you have to live your life. If you lose people in your life that are not accepting of you, they don't belong in your life, and you don't want them there. And the best thing I did even though it was so hard when I was 16, is be who I was going to be. You know, be who I was. Because that's when I started finding friends that mm-hmm. actually, I mean, outside of school, and st- that actually were good with me because they were gay too. And I started realizing that I wasn't the only human being on planet Earth that was gay. Because when you're 16, you feel very isolated. Right. right. You don't know anyone else who's gay for the most part. And you just came out, you just feel very alone and very afraid, really, very alone and very afraid. But that's when things open up. When you're out and you're honest about who you are, the world, you know, the universe or God or whatever puts people in your life to help you through the rest and to become friends. Like I said, that, that the two friends that I met in high school, I still communicate with them. I still know them. And I owe them a lot. Because they really helped me through mm-hmm. a, a rough time when I was having trouble accepting myself. So fast forward to when you were in your 20s and you said that you were living kind of a crazy life that was a direct reflection of the abuse that you suffered. How did you get through that time? What made you come out on the other side of that? Well, I think, you know, in part... I had a career back then, right? I was in, in management, in uh, retail management back then. And um, everything that I, my partying and, you know, all the crazy stuff was outside of my work, right? So on the weekends was really my party time. And a lot of times um, I would not sleep that night, go home, take a shower and, and go to work. But... I was, you know, that whole time is like a blur because it wasn't who I was. The great thing is that I never decided to get into drugs 
and, and, you know, be an addict because, you know, it's so easy to get drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't even realize it until you're 20 something, how easy it is to get drugs. And, um, I decided, I mean, I drank a lot, you know, partied a lot, went out to bars a lot. Um, all of that comes from the abuse. You know, you're, you're living a blur. But when I turned 30, I realized that all the goals that I had set for myself in my life, I didn't, I didn't do. I wasn't doing anything. I mean, because you spend your life partying, you accomplish nothing, right? So I, I asked God for help. That's how I got through it. I asked God for help, and I told him I want to reset my goals. Help me. And I said, help me find someone to share my life with. And um, I was 30 years old, and Lisa came into my life that summer. And I reset all my goals. Like one of my goals was to buy, buy my own home, right? And Lisa and I, I reset my goals for 35. I was going to be 35 years old. I wasn't, I did not know how the hell I was going to do that when I was 30. It, you know, five years to put money together to buy a house. Okay. I had no idea, but I knew that that was my goal. And you know how you always say that the universe helps you. Mm -hmm. Well, at 35 in May, I was living in my new house. Wow. So okay? awesome. I mean, we actually went to work for a company, a retail company, that actually gave us stock at like $3 and some odd cents. When it went on the market, it went on the market at 27 something. Okay. So welcome to our new home. <laughs> well, you see the universe or God, to me, it's God. Yeah. But, um, it, it, he helps you through it. All you have to do is, is tell him this is what you want and go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And you'll get there yep. when, when, when you don't even know how the hell you're going to do it. Get really, out of the way. No idea. And I had no idea in my crazy life how I was going to meet anyone. And what the hell, how was I going to meet anyone anytime soon? Never expected Lisa. I mean, I knew... I had faith that I would find someone, but I never expected Lisa. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially that summer, that very summer. How did you first, guys? How did you guys meet? Um, I was working for HQ Office Supply, and we bought out her company, Workplace, right? Um, and she was one of the managers, and I um, had to go. Um, train her because I worked as the corporate trainer at the time. So I had to go store to store and store. And since she was a new manager, I had to go over there and train her. So she was the one who unlocked the door to the store because I got there before the store opened, unlocked the door and saw me. And, uh, and I introduced myself because she had a face like, Oh, she was expecting a corporate trainer. Right. And mm -hmm. she wasn't very happy about this whole thing. Right. The, the workplace was bought out all those things. And um, I said, hi, I'm Nanette. And instantly, instantly her face changed. And I couldn't figure out what the heck. What? <laughs> I mean, suddenly she got a smile on her face and she was friendly because before that you could tell she was not happy to open that door. And uh, later on she told me it was because um, 
she knew I was gay because everyone knew in the company I was gay and she had already heard that I was gay. So, hmm. so you know, and from then on, you know how Lisa doesn't talk to anybody mm -hmm. until they get to, she gets to know her? I mean, gets to know people? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. that day she acted like she had known me a lifetime. She did not stop talking the entire time. Wow. We did not stop. I mean, besides the training, in between, we were just talking about our lives and everything. Like, we, I mean, she was familiar. Right. You know, yeah. I had never met her before. I had never seen her before. But somehow, she was familiar. And after that, I never even saw anybody else. That was it. I mean, I actually asked her to keep boxes for me because I was moving. Now, now, keep in mind that I could have gotten boxes from anywhere because I went from store to store to store, right? <laughs> I could have gotten boxes there any, any day, right? And I wasn't even packing up yet the house, yeah. right? But I figured this is a good idea because then I could come back and, and, and ask her out for drinks and she helped me, right? So <laughs> she put all the boxes together. And then she called me and she said, are you going to come pick up the boxes? And I said, yeah, let me come over tonight and pick up the boxes after work. And then I'll take you out for a drink since you did all this for me. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> <laughs> she had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Never did that before. So anyway, um, I asked her... Um, so she decided, oh, yeah, okay. So we went to El Torito, mm. actually. And and then um, it, it was like when El Torito quit serving drinks close to 2 in the morning because we were at the bar or something like that. I don't remember. But anyway, we, we left, and she was going to go home, and I was going to go home my way. And... Um, so I walked her to her car and she sat down. I left the door open just in case she wanted to get out of the car. So I went and sat in my car and took me a minute to get ready. And and um, it didn't really take me a minute. It just was going to take me right, a minute. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so then she walked over to my car and she said, you want to go somewhere? I said, yeah, let's go to the beach. So then I, I took her to the beach and we hung out. And the rest is history. Wow. Oh, I love that story. So yeah. awesome. Okay, so now to jump to a different note. <laughs> Sorry, that was lovely, but okay, let's get to the nitty-gritty. Tell me about what happened with your health. How did it how did that downhill journey start and what was rock bottom and how did you start climbing out of it and tell well, me how that happened? I was um 38 years old. I I it was January, I remember, and I got the the flu, I thought. I mean, I had this fatigue that felt like my body weighed a ton. You know, like my arms and legs weighed. Not like I was holding weights. They weighed. And I could barely get out of bed, and it was not like me. I mean, because the flu, I just pushed through it and just get through it, right? But that's what I thought I had, but I couldn't figure out how do I have the flu when, you know, I don't have a cough or anything like that. It's not the stomach flu. I don't, I didn't have any idea what was wrong with me. That's just how it started. And then after that, um, I pushed myself out of bed to get to work and I was having problems 
I was just, I felt like I was having problems with my legs and walking and, and I, you know, the fatigue wouldn't go away. My legs weighed so much. My arms weighed so much. Um, because, you know, we don't think about the weight of our arms and legs, mm -hmm. right? It's part of our weight, but you don't feel it because your brain doesn't let you feel it. But when this happens, you do. And then I started with nerve pain in my legs, which were horrendous. If you've ever had nerve pain in your legs, you want to die. Because there's no nerve pain, there's nothing that takes it away. Nothing. And nothing that helps, because you can't touch it, you can't massage it. The last thing you want to do is touch it, or have anything else touch it. But when you lay down to go to sleep, your legs are on something, right? They're touching something, and it feels like you have a small uh, rod, you know, or metal rod, and you push it through your foot inside your your bone <sighs> up to your knee, and you just twirl it around for good measure because you don't want to get bored. Oh that's my God. What, that's exactly how nerve pain feels in your legs. That's how visually I would tell you it feels. So for and, some reason, I was thinking it was more like on the surface, so it's deep within. Oh, yeah. You can't get to it. You, you can't get to the nerve pain. It's not on the surface. Not at all. <sighs> not at all. You, you just know it's deep in there, and you can't get to it. And there's nothing you, you think probably is the surface because the nerves come outward, right? right? So when you touch it on the surface, it hurts. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's deep. It's deep. It's deep in your leg. That's how it feels. So, I mean, because that visual is exactly what it feels like. And so, it moved from your legs, right? Well, I had it in my legs. Right. And I started with the pain in my face. And it was my left side, and it was my head and my face. It was the most excruciating pain I have ever felt in my life. It they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me to begin with, right? It took them years to figure it out. Really? Yeah, years. Okay, because they wouldn't listen to me. The first thing they do is say, oh, it's your nerves. It's stress. I mean, I had one neurologist tell me that I um, was having midlife crisis wow. at 38. I haven't had midlife crisis yet. I'm <laughs> You're going to live a long time then. My mom was sitting there saying, you obviously don't know my daughter very well because my daughter doesn't care about her age, so you're wrong. So do you find it um, interesting that um, you were traumatized with your um, aggressor coming in on the left side and that's the side you oh. felt your nerve pain on? Right. Oh, no, I, I don't think it's interesting. I think it's exactly why. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think your body, your body goes through what your brain and your emotions are putting it through. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I was diagnosed eventually with MS, right? And it's interesting to me that MS uh, numbs the body. Right. Because I was numbing myself mm -hmm. emotionally. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I didn't numb myself with drugs or alcohol or anything like that. I numb myself by turning off my feelings anytime something hurt. Right. It was like a switch. Went like that, and I could instantly turn off whatever I felt. All it had to do was hurt a little, 
that was it. The switch went off. So you don't have to use any addiction or anything like that to actually numb out. Right. And you made a comment earlier on the live that we were doing about numbing. And you said the problem with numbing your feelings that are painful is that you also numb all that joy. Oh, yes. I mean, when you don't feel the painful, you don't feel anything else. I mean, really, because joy is about feeling. Um, writing a book, for example, is about feeling. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel anything, how are you going to write anything? I mean, and then if you're writing a book and you're in a, you know, in a chapter where you, you have to feel deep and you instantly numb out because um, it's a ha it becomes a habit. Even when you don't want to, still today, where I'm not living numb, thank the Lord, but still today, I can switch it off. Yeah, you have to be aware <laughs> yeah, of, of what do. some of your bad habits are from your yeah. past that just that just automatically come up. Uh, you know, yeah. I know that you're an empath. We're so is Summer, so am I, and so empaths really do struggle with because we're so overly. Um, we feel so much, it can become feeling like it's too much to be able to feel. So a lot of empaths will find ways to be able to numb out. So it definitely 100%. I, I did that as well. Besides having an eating disorder, I as well learned how to shut off all my emotions. And I look back on that time and it's so scary to think back on who I was and how I felt and absolutely feeling no emotion. No, I was never happy. I was never, I didn't feel joy. I never cried and I can cry at the drop of a hat. Like, <laughs> I, tears are always spilling out of my eyes. And I went for years, never shedding a single tear. And that's such a scary place to be. And I don't even have memories of what I went through during that time. Like people will bring up memories. Mm. I'm like, Ooh, I don't remember that. Oh, I was too. gone, gone. Yeah, some things in my childhood too are wiped out. I mean, there's years there that yeah. people say you did this or we did this or whatever. I, I don't, Go I on. wasn't present in the moment. Me too. I wasn't present. And I still have that habit of, um, I have to be very aware that I'm leaving the present moment. Right. You know, right. I'm much better at it because now I'm developing the other habit of, being aware of where I am and what I'm doing, because the only way you can feel joy is to be in the moment mm -hmm. and, and realize, you know, how beautiful that moment is and, and how the people are that are around you and experiencing that. That's the only way that you can really feel joy to begin with. So turning off that switch just made me not feel anything. And as an empath, you know, I used to, I used to hear all the time you're too sensitive. Oh, mm -hmm. me too. <laughs> too emotional. Yeah, duh. I'm an empath. <laughs> no, but, you know, back then, I didn't even know. Right. Neither did. Yeah. Neither did I. I didn't know what an empath was, much less that I was one. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I realized that I also have to, and and I've done it without numbing out. I've also had to shield myself from people that are negative. I mean, even in the room, they're negative. I'm not talking about people in my oh, yeah. life. Oh, yeah. it, you know, you walk into a party or, or into a room and you can feel 
the negativity in the room and where it's coming from. And I, you know, I just developed this habit of it in my mind, it's like an acrylic shield. Mm. So it doesn't numb me out, but it, it shields me from those people. Yeah. I mean, it's a visual thing in my brain, right. That I made up yeah. just to shield myself. And I, I put it in front of me towards the, the negativity in the room. That's beautiful. It can make you crazy. Yeah. It, yeah, I um, I had a Reiki master years ago tell me that one thing that I could do is before going into a room, put an imaginary bubble of light around myself, and mm-hmm. and you know as I'm putting that light around me, um, say I I am I am shielding myself with all love and light. The only thing that can enter is anything that serves me, and anything that does not serve me keeps stays outside of the bubble. And I did that for a while. Now I feel like I just kind of instinctively put up some type of a barrier. I don't need to visualize it, but it really did help in the beginning to be able to protect myself because it can be very overwhelming and almost crippling to go out in public, especially to parties or anything where there's like a large intimate gathering. I still don't like going to parties. I will be like, oh, I'm busy (laughs) as I'm laying in bed. (laughs) <laughs> I love going out with just an intimate group of friends, two or three girlfriends. That's like my most favorite thing to do. But when it, somebody invites me to an actual party where there's a lot of people there, it's like, ugh, I'd rather poke myself in the eye with a fork. <laughs> so, well, like, but it's hard. I mean, I know who a person is when they approach me, whether they're good or bad. Mm, or, yeah. I know who they are before I meet them. And sometimes that's hard. Because you also, in your life, meet bad people mm-hmm. that are bad, deep bad, you know? I met a sociopath once, you know that? Wow. Yeah. And this sociopath, I felt sick, literally, physically. I felt like my brain was, um, like I was drunk kind of thing, without being drunk. That's how I felt. I mean, it was so bad the emotions that I was like physically getting sick and I knew it was him without a doubt. It was him. He was so, I mean, it was sickening because my, my brain picks it up and I wasn't, I was in my own home. So I didn't shield myself Mm -hmm. because it wasn't expected. You know, it was brought over by someone else. Mm who actually wanted me to meet him because she was worried that he was what a sociopath. Right. Well, it wouldn't be your brain that felt it. It would be, it would be your heart, your intuition. Right. Right. But what I'm saying is that I felt so sick that I actually got dizzy in my head. Um, So that's why I'm saying the brain, because Mm -hmm. you're right. My brain didn't feel it, but it was like my whole body reacted. Was affected. Yeah. So what was the lowest point of your health issues? And tell I, me about how you climbed out of it. I, um, I got to the point where I was so depressed and in so much pain that I was like, well, first of all, I, I couldn't work anymore. And that to me was a big deal. You know, I was a workaholic. Okay. I mean, literally I was at work all the time. And um, suddenly, I found myself that I couldn't work. And, and that wasn't like me at all. So that made me depressed too. And 
at one point, my cousin was staying with me. Here's the lowest point. The lowest point was I was living in my room, basically. I was living in my room. I, it was like my cave, you know? But I wasn't getting that because, you know, when, when you're doing something, you're feeling something like that, you don't see yourself in the mirror as doing what you're doing, right? And Lisa was worried about me. My cousin came to live with me temporarily. And my cousin came up to me and sat up to, and, and she knew me very well. She knows me very well. And she said, you know, you got to come out of your little cave. I said, what are you talking about, cave? I said, you're living in a dark cave. And that's not you. You need to come out. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to do it. And then I, I told Lisa about it because I listened to her. You know, I listen to the people that I know love me. You know, even if they're telling me something that I don't want to hear, if I know you love me, I'm going to listen. I may not agree, but I'm going to hear you. So I told Lisa, I said, you know, my cousin said this. And she said, you are living in a cave. You don't even want to open the blinds. That's how bad it was. I was numbing out. The TV was on. And... It's interesting, when you numb out to the TV, you don't even know what's on TV. You know, if someone asks you, you have no idea. Because you're just, you, you know, I was existing. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what it was. I wasn't living, I was just existing. So um, Lisa said, you need to get help. I said, you know what, I don't have the energy to call someone to get help. And Lisa said, I'll call somebody. And she found someone, and she called... Uh, the psychologist, and it's the best thing I ever did. They had to put me, you know, on antidepressants or whatever, because, you know, it messes up your brain. But, um, you know, it's the best thing I did. Mm -hmm. It was Lisa again. Lisa strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> and then, how did you start helping your body to heal? Oh well, after this happened. Then, you know, I decided that, you know, I had to work out, but, you know, it's difficult to get yourself to work out when you haven't worked out and you're laying in bed all the time, right? But then Rhino Fitness had this sign on a road where Green River where I had to go just to get to the freeway or to get to the doctor. I saw it every day, like a discount price for Rhino Fitness. <laughs> And I would stare at it every day saying, I have to stop there. And then suddenly one day I was about to pass. I'll never forget it because I drove not really good. So I was about to pass the sign again in the driveway to the little uh, center. And I just went, you know, and drove in and talked to Joe. And, and uh, I told him I need to, I need to work out and sick and, I need to do whatever I need to do to work out. And I started boot camp. I mean, I went from having problems with balance, coordination, walking. I mean, the list goes on. Um, I had tremors and, and all that to her kicking my butt. Carrie, kicking my butt. <laughs> what? <day>. Me? <laughs> I still to this day do not know how I did it because I could barely move, really. I mean, I had no energy. Um, my limbs weighed a lot, all that. And yet I would get up at four because I had to take a pill for fatigue to go work out. 
because otherwise I couldn't work out. 4 a.m. 4 a.m. Not 4 p.m. Yeah. No, 4 a.m. She'd wake up at 4 a.m. to come to my boot camp. At 5. Yeah. And I wasn't late either. No, I would get you're to. always on time. Yeah. You, were not, you, you didn't miss. You didn't miss unless... You were so down, either your knee that was that you're having problems with, or, um, or just your MS flaring up. You did not miss. Period. No, and and at the beginning, I would go to boot camp, and the rest of the day I was physically done. I mean, I would lay in bed. The minute I got home from boot camp, you know, I took a shower because I, but I was so exhausted, I would lay in bed. And I would have the chills, and I would be under the covers for most of the day. And then, and then the next day, I had it off from boot camp, and I started getting better. And then the following day, I was at boot camp again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, and my- it was it was beautiful to watch because um, you really, really, really. <laughs> <laughs> in my twisted way. No, it really was beautiful to watch, to watch you really genuinely struggle. And I, I, I knew somewhat some of your health issues, but not as much as I know now. Um, and then as you trained with me, you gave me a little bit more insight on the everyday pain that you felt, but I knew that you had balance issues. I knew that you were struggling with some, with quite a few health issues and then some knee issues. And it was just so beautiful to watch you never give up. No matter if you were the last person coming in or, you know, you only got a couple of the reps out when everybody else was getting double, triple the amount, you came to every single class, you went for the whole entire hour and you gave your 150%. And the women that were in that group were just so amazing because we really came together as a family and nobody was left behind. We were always uplifting each other and uh, running beside each other and, and um, just really pushing each other to, to keep going, get another rep. You've got this. It was just so beautiful. You started every boot camp by running. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, you know, I was having a great time running, okay? The first, <laughs> the first few times I was like throwing up in the corner yeah. kind of thing because, you know, running? Are you kidding? I can't hardly move. And she wants me to run. Yeah. But, you know, Terry, yep. Terry, who ran fast, okay? I mean, she's marathons and all that she would stop and, and say, you can do this. You can do this. And yeah. she'd actually yeah. slow down to run with me. Yeah. And I was the slowest of all of them, of course, at the time. And she would slow down to run with me. Towards the end of the last boot camps I, I did, it was interesting because I would s- struggle to beat her <laughs> and running. It's yeah. like, get you this time. I'm yeah. going to win. <laughs> well, it was beautiful because then, um, you ended up paying it forward to other people who, um, either had health issues or just excess weight that was really slowing them down and you would slow down and run with them. And I knew you could run so much faster than what you were. And I knew what your intention was. And that was to support the person who was struggling because that's what others did for you. And it was, it was amazing right. to watch that. Well, you know, my biggest thing was I was frustrated that I couldn't keep up you know so I saw that in other people that started working out they were frustrated they couldn't keep up and I didn't want them to quit 
yeah. you know, so yeah. I, I thought, you know, I'll help them through it and they'll make it through yeah. and they'll keep going. So, because yeah. I would never quit even if I died doing yeah. it. <laughs> the other thing that was amazing was once I got to know you a lot more and know a lot of your health health issues and some of the pain that you felt, um, especially when you were working out in extreme heat or extreme cold and what it did to, uh, to your MS flare-ups and that nobody had any idea the amount of pain that you were in while you were going through the boot camp. Uh, and then to hear others kind of complain about, oh, I got this or that. And then knowing what you were going through, it's like, oh, girl, <laughs> you're good. But it was, it, you know, there was times where I remember you telling me about how it would be so hot and it felt like you were doing lunges through dried cement. I, it was just so excruciating painful. And that, you know, your face was, was flared up so much to the point where it felt like fire underneath your skin. But yet you were there. You were so, you were not, it was not by motivation. That was by commitment and dedication. Motivation would have kept, it would have been long gone and you would have stayed in your bed. You were oh. dedicated and commi committed to your health, rain or shine. Right. No matter what, I was going to get healthy. And um, nerve pain does not get better when you're working out. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, right. It, it, it's not like, you know, if you have blood flow problems that things will get better when you work out. Nerve pain just hurts worse if it's humanly possible to hurt worse. So sometimes the, the flare-ups were like, someone kill me now, but I kept going anyway. I just wouldn't quit. I, I mean, I knew that I... I knew somehow also, even though this was chronic pain and I had had it for so long, so many years, um, I knew it would go away. I don't know how I knew that. I just knew that it would. Wow. So where yeah. are you now? What, what, you know, what's the status of yeah, your health? How did it go away? What happened? Yeah. You know what? I was desperate in pain last June. And I was taking Botox, you know, getting shots of Botox in the nerve area, which are excruciatingly painful too, because the nerve is flaring up and they're putting a needle there. It's just, you know, not good. And and it took four or five days after that for it to actually calm down, right? But it never took the pain away completely. I would say, you know, people say, you're not in pain now? Well, no, not really. But, you know, that's because the pain on a scale of 0 to 10 was not a 15. It was a 3. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that because I, I didn't want to tell everybody I was in pain every single day. I right. mean, what would be the point? It's, it won't, you know what? It wouldn't make me feel better. It wouldn't take away the pain just to concentrate or focus on it. it it's the opposite. So in June, you know, I became Botox resistant because... You know, you use a lot of units for uh, Botox for pain. It's not like, you know, people use units, small amounts for, um, and Botox has an antibody in it that actually makes you get, get resistant to it. You know, things happen for a reason. And I, I wear a, a mouthpiece for sleep apnea and it broke. Right? And that cost a lot to fix. And I was so pissed off. Excuse me. So upset. You can <laughs> you can say fuck shit, damn. You're good. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I was so pissed off 
because it was going to cost me money. And um, I went to the dentist that was going to do it. And I was desperately in pain. And I knew I was going to have to open my mouth to put, you know, the thing in to make a new one, the mold. Um, but I could barely open my mouth. I mean, I was that whole side. I was trying not to move it. And he asked me, what, what is going on with this? Because he wasn't my regular dentist who knew about it. He, he was the one who did the sleep apnea mouthpiece, which was separate. And I told him, I have trigeminal neuralgia. And he said, oh, I can cure that for you. And I looked at him, I said, listen, yeah, right, I have right. tried every pain specialist and every neurologist, I think, on planet Earth, and every pill on planet Earth. So no pill works, no shot works, nothing. He said, I guarantee you, I will help you. And I looked at him, I said, you guarantee me, you'll help me. I said, you know, what do I have to lose, right. really? I can't deal with this pain. It's not going to, nothing is going to help me now. Because literally nothing helps that pain. So I said, okay, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I have to flare up the pain some more first. I went, oh, yeah, are you kidding? Yeah. I'm going to have a heart attack here soon. He said, well, I have to, I have to put a, um, a shot inside your gum to numb it because I'm going to give you stem cells. Wow. Umbilical cord stem cell. Wow. And they're very thick, right? So it will be too much pain if I don't numb it. So he numbs it. They bring it in this frozen thing, you know, frozen container from the company. And he shoots it up. And that pain was gone that day. And it has not come back. What? Since June. So amazing. Unbelievable. It, it was a miracle since June. And it was all because that mouthpiece broke. Oh, and I my have, gosh. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, because the day I had the mouthpiece, it wasn't the pain wasn't like that. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was like a, I could barely open my mouth. Wow. What is it about the stem cells that made the pain go away? They, they work on your immune system, stem mm -hmm. cells. And it's an autoimmune problem that's causing that pain. Some people have trigeminal neuralgia because a, a, a vein is pushing up against the nerve or something, but that wasn't my problem. So stem cells go into your immune system. Like the first day, the stem cells go in. This, by the second day, you have 50 million more stem cells. Wow. Okay, so because your immune system, the reason we age and all that is because your immune system starts slowing down because our bodies are perfect. So our immune system cells say, well, I have to last her a lifetime. I don't know until when she'll last, right? So at the age of 18, they start slowing down. But now you're feeding them all these stem cells and the immune system says, okay, we can work now. Wow. That's how it works. And, and we, that's what helped me. It helped a lot of things, actually. I, I started getting uh, bumps in my hands from arthritis. And they told me I had osteoarthritis. And within, I think, two or three weeks of the stem cells, the bumps started going away. I'm going to Google how to get stem cells <laughs> injected in my face and my ass. <laughs> 
it grows your ass. Well, maybe it will. <laughs> it probably it's grows your muscles. <laughs> so, Nanette, we will definitely be posting the link or at least the info of your doctor on on this um, podcast. Oh, yes, yeah, send us because the info. I'm sure that there are. We really want to promote that. Um, those who have MS to really uh, listen to this so that they can hear your story and possibly have the same experience as you. I mean, I'm sure that you would have just been itching to have heard that information. We we forgot one part though, Nanette, that was really important and powerful from your last podcast. And that was what the workouts did for you and how it enabled you to get off all those medications that you were on. Right. Well, the workouts were, I mean, that and changing the way I ate. That's right. All Mm -hmm. the processed foods and stuff. I got rid of all the processed foods. So, I mean, that makes such a difference. I I read up on a doctor um, that was in a wheelchair and everything that had MS and and, uh, by cleaning up the processed foods and starting to move, she actually got on a bicycle. I mean, you don't have any coordination no. and balance. All of a sudden, you're riding a, I mean, not a, That's all like of a sudden. That's like a miracle. process. And it started with her getting rid of process because our bodies aren't made to take in all that stuff on a continuous basis. I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, something, but it's another thing to be continuously eating processed foods. Right. I never, I, I didn't at the time cook, right? So I asked Gary... Well, first of all, when I started working out, I started boot camp, right? But then after Carrie left Rhino, I still did boot camp, but I also worked out with her privately. Mm-hmm. Remember at the yep. apartment where yep. you had worked out privately with her, and I, she was working with me on my coordination, my balance. So uh, I wasn't losing weight like I wanted to lose weight, but this was January 2nd. I'll never forget and I just went to Carrie and I said, okay, you know what? I don't care about my weight anymore. I just want to get healthy. You know, I want to work out and get healthy. That's what I want. It's so funny because <laughs> by the end of March, I had lost three sizes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And all I wanted to do was get healthy. I thought to myself, damn it. Why didn't I do this before? <laughs> why, yeah. why didn't you want to I get know. healthy before? <laughs> so, um, you know, it helped me get more energy. It helped me coordination balance. It helped my health totally. And com- working out was a miracle thing for me. I mean, it, it was amazing. Um, it's still amazing. It keeps my health up. Um, it keeps me with balanced coordination, which is very important. Um, you know, I still worked out after Carrie left Arizona. I still work out now. I just pretend she's there <laughs> whipping me. <laughs> oh, my God. That would have been so crazy if I actually had a whip. <laughs> you know what? You might as well have. But <laughs> I can still hear her in, in my brain, I swear. <laughs> so um, I think that's all I said about the exercising, right? Or was mm-hmm. it something, you know, it's just... And the medications that you were on and that you're not on now. Oh, well, I had to take medication for fatigue, for example. 
and I'm not on it anymore. And that's pretty amazing because when I first started, I had to take that medication to get out of bed at four in the morning mm -hmm. so I could work out at five. Because if not, it wasn't happening. Also, my, my knee... My knee actually is missing the padding, the meniscus on one side, right? So my knee sits sideways on my left knee. Everything's my left, by the way. Yep. Notice that, yep. right? My, so it sits sideways because I had surgery and they, back then when they did it, they cut out part of the meniscus. So it was clicking. I could hear it click when I started working out with Carrie. But when you build muscle, that doesn't happen anymore. My doctor had told me I needed knee replacement. I was 40 years old. I laughed. I said, is there something else I can do because that's not happening? And they told me, no, just a knee replacement. My orthopedic surgeon said that. And I told them, that's not happening. I'm going to find somewhere, some way to do it other than that. And, you know, when I started working out with her, I was shooting up with steroids in, in the knee. I was shooting up with Synvisc in the knee. One time I actually worked, walked into the gym because I didn't want her to think I quit, <laughs> you know, and I was going to miss one day and I hadn't missed any days till, till then. And I walked into the gym and showed Joe, I was actually, it, the knee was swollen huge and I was walking on crutches. Of course, the next day, the next boot camp, should I say, which was two days, you know, every other day I did it. So this was boot camp that I had missed that day. The next boot camp, I was there modifying. Yep. Mm. I was determined. Yeah, I was committed to making that go away, too. And you know what? I couldn't jog on the treadmill when she put me on there. Remember the first time? Yeah. Because oh, it was scary. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, she's going to go flying off. And it was yeah. just barely going. It was pounding. I mean, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. Now I run a mile to start off my workout on the treadmill that I have in my garage yep. and no pounding, no knee pain, e even in the winter, humid, nothing. And it was just because I started working out because my knee still sits the same. I mean, if you think about it, it's just not clicking together, but the meniscus is still not there. And I think about all these people, the older people too, that are getting um, knee replacements and all they have to do is work out. Build that muscle up. Yeah, build that muscle up so the knees aren't clicking together. Oh, you're amazing. I'm yeah. just so thrilled that we got a second chance with you <laughs> because I feel like we're even more bestie friends now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we recorded a, um, a podcast, a full podcast with Nanette, and um, it didn't, we had some technical difficulties. So luckily, Nanette was willing to record a whole nother podcast with her story. And we really appreciate it because we love hearing your story. And we know that others are going to be extremely mm -hmm. blessed and touched to be able to listen to your story because there's so much to it. There's so many different components to it that there's, you know, one, one part of your story is really going to touch one person and another party part will touch someone else. And it's just beautiful that, um, so much of what you've gone through is going to bless others and being able to know, okay, like if she was able to get through that, I can, if she did that, I can. It's amazing. How do you feel about having recorded it a second time? Well, 
you know, the second time is better than the first because the first time I just finished the recording and I, I thought I said everything. I mean, I just, you know, I put this on a computer. They're going to put it on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to know everything. Yeah. And, and I, I've never been like that. I've always been very private and never, at one point, I just didn't even want to be seen, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. by, I mean, I didn't want to be known by other people, especially not like this. And now you have it all. It's going on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know what? If it can help somebody, that's why I'm doing it. Yep. And if, if there's one thing I would say to anybody going through anything, one message, never, ever give up because you can go through it no matter what it is and get to the other side. Just find a way to do it. Yeah. Never yes. give up. That's so beautiful. Good. I love that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You're amazing. And we love you, Nanette. Yeah. I can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you so Thank much. You're amazing. She's amazing. You know, I love you. I, I love know. You. I love you too. <laughs> I'm crazy. in my life to help me. Yeah. I, I, that's another thing. In my life, I have always been, people have always been put in my life at specific times to help me. Always. Some people stay in my life, like Carrie. Mm -hmm. uh, but forever and ever. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. Get them? rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried, but hell, she's safe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, always, you know, you ask for help, and it comes. Mm -hmm. Somehow, some way, somebody will show up in your life. Be open, and you never know where that help is coming from. So, the just just ask for it and be open and receptive to it, and without expectations of it looking a certain way or being a certain way. And we will be constantly surprised mm -hmm. and delighted. It's beautiful. Oh yeah, you know, I remember when you were going to leave Rhino. Before you were going to leave Rhino, I, I, I don't remember. I wish I could remember why I asked her for her number. She gave. I didn't ask her. She gave me her number for some reason. I was probably giving you an article or something like that. Yeah. But she gave me her number. And thank God, because yeah. when she left Rhino, I chased her down. I mean, I was in tears. <laughs> I swear, I was, I'm not exaggerating. I was in tears that this woman was leaving Rhino. What am I going to do? Carrie, help. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I said, you can't do this. I'll follow you wherever you go. You leave the country, I'll follow you, you know. Yeah, I I chose to I chose to leave them uh, and go on my own and out of respect to their business, I did not contact any of my clients that I had in my boot camp. Uh, if they were going to contact me and ask where I was, absolutely, I'm going to let you work with me. And it was so beautiful to watch one person after another find me in some way, either it was through Facebook or through, through uh, my phone number and where are you? And it was just, I felt so completely supported. It was beautiful. So I actually um, had to stalk uh, Carrie as well. Yeah, she did. Wow. <laughs> I met her a year before. I actually um, started training with her and then forced her to be my best friend. But when I first met her, I was like, oh, we will be best friends. <laughs> and I had no idea. No idea. I would have been a little bit scared. 
<laughs> you yeah. probably still should be. <laughs> you know what's funny? I thought Carrie and I were never going to be friends. Yeah. When we went to that Pink concert. I even asked Lisa, you think her and I could be friends? Because I, I really love Carrie, right? Yeah. And Lisa said, no way. <laughs> well, really? I mean, I, I don't know how it happened or what was going on, but I thought, you're right. That's what I thought, too. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So that Pink concert actually was, you went to the Pink concert with Lisa, and that's the first time that I ever met, met her. I went with one of my other clients, Rayanne, who you're also really good friends with. She got me a ticket, so she brought me. And you and Lisa came up to us, to our seats, for you to introduce Lisa to us. And so it was at that point, I guess, is that when you asked her, are you, and yeah. I didn't train Lisa at that time. I had no, obviously never met, met her. Because I, I thought you and I were never going to be friends, and I, I loved you to death. I mean, you were amazing. Right, as, but I was as, just your trainer. But, but no, but you know what, Carrie? You're not just a trainer. You've never <laughs> no, no, it's true. Yeah. Okay, this life coach, what you're doing today, you did with me right. at the beginning when you were training. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you, we had lots of lots of coaching moments for sure. Exactly, exactly. So, and you taught me a lot. So, um, you were a life coach then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had a lot more to do with physical, it, it, less to do with physical training than the whole thing, because I remember you telling me, you know, what you think is you can do, you can do. Yeah. And I remember one time I was lifting. It was so funny because on boot camp, I could lift a 20-pound weight just fine with my arms, right? Like that same week. And then one time I was lifting it in your gym, and I couldn't lift it. It was like I was doing this. And Henry <laughs> looked at me and said, you just said to yourself you couldn't lift that weight because it was too heavy. And she was right on the money. That's exactly what, oh, this is too heavy. I can't lift it. Something I had lifted a week earlier or something. So the next time I came into the gym, I went right to it ahead of the ahead of the ahead of our workout, and I went, "Damn it, I'm lifting this," and I lifted it just fine. But it was my brain that told me I couldn't do it. And when you tell your body you can't do something or you say you can't do it, you won't. Right. You can't. And it's true. She taught me that. Your brain tells you what you can do or what you can't do. Mm -hmm. So you better tell it the right message. Like, <laughs> I can't. it's well, true. You won't. Tell it, tell it what Carrie tells you to tell it or else. <laughs> I'm the boss. Uh, you know, it's interesting though, going back to um, Lisa's comment and you asking her that question, you think we'll ever be friends. I was, I was thinking back on that time and I was still in the thick of my eating disorder. I wasn't purging at that time, but I was um, in an extreme binge and restrict place and very much still numbing out and really had basically like a castle around me of yeah. nobody penetrating this wall. So even though I was um, mentoring and helping clients, nobody was allowed in. So d Lisa was definitely spot on with me. And no, you would have never been my friend because I just wouldn't allow anybody in. I was completely closed off and numbed out. And so when our relationship finally did start to blossom was with me just being willing and open and um, vulnerable with accepting people into my life and accepting relationships and friendships. I could feel your wall around 
Yeah. I mean, I could actually, I mean, it, she was, I mean, that wall was thick too. You could yeah. not get through to her. I was badass and, Carrie Whipkey trainer. Like that's. And, and I knew there was a wall there, you know, keeping her away from everybody, even though she was so amazing teaching us so much because she really was. I knew there was a wall around her because I could feel it. You could—it was so thick that you could almost see it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, we're never yeah. going to be friends because you can't be a friend to someone who's walled off like nope. that. And and you knew she was numb. I mean, she smiled, <laughs> but you know, she was numb. I I knew it then. Mm-hmm. And that's why Lisa said that. Yep. She said we'd never be friends, and I was so sad, saddened about that because I knew. Even though she had that wall up, I knew what type of person she was. Because look at she, us now. I know. You're stuck <laughs> forever. <laughs> what little did you know? Yeah. Oh, we've done many lives together, Nanette. So we're stuck with each other for like multiple, multiple lives we've been doing this. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you tired That's of scary. me yet? <laughs> Oh, well, we have loved having you on the show for the second time. Nobody got to listen to the first time, but they will absolutely thoroughly enjoy listening yeah, to your story. This is more Annette. rich and more deep. Yeah. And perfect. It's beautiful. I guess it was meant to be. Every, it always. It's always meant to be. Always. I knew it wasn't meant to be that way. I, yeah. All right. Thank you. We love you so much, Nanette. Love you. Love I can't you. wait to meet you. Ah. Follow Instagram, follow us on Instagram and Facebook.